Welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. It's been an eventful start for the new Biden administration. We've had the inauguration, the long wait for COVID vaccines, a mixed bag of concerning and encouraging news, lots of activity from the White House. So I guess, Mooney, the question is, is America back? Oh, Peter, that's an existential question and also the question for this episode. And at what better moment? And we are going to revisit a topic we discussed around this time two years ago, which was the retreat and now an apparent return of the United States to the global table where powerful countries make all their decisions. And we've invited back Ivo Dalder. He was the author of the perfectly titled The Empty Throne and Abdication of American Leadership. And he'll be our guest today. So in 2019, Peter Ivo and I discussed America's inward turn and its abdication of global leadership. And today we'll take stock of what has happened since then and how much harm has been done and what challenges remain for the U.S. and its partners around that table. Muni, so you know I love food. So I love your metaphor of the table. It's great. And, you know, besides the food, it also brings visions of FDR, Churchill and de Gaulle saving the world from fascism or Reagan, Gorbachev and Thatcher with communism a few decades later. And since then, we've had a cascade of multilateral tables. I guess that's a let me continue the metaphor. You know, things like NATO, the UN, WHO, and then it's been followed by the G7, the G20, the Paris Climate Accords. And in the last four years, Donald Trump replaced that international table, that international order with a bunch of transactional relationships, largely leaving the US on the outside looking in on any multilateral effort. And for the last four years, we also saw a generalized erosion of the global consensus and China's rise as a superpower beyond anyone's forecast, largely facilitated by the vacuum created by the United States. But things are changing, and President Biden campaigned on a multilateral foreign policy and rejoined lots of these institutions on the first day that he had in the Oval Office. And the return of the U.S. is a good news, without a doubt. Europe is breathing a sigh of relief. Merkel can finally step down, confident that Germany's allies across the Atlantic are getting their act back together. Russia is concerned and China is expecting much of the same in terms of pushback, but maybe anticipating a change in tone and a return to a more serious policy-oriented discussion. I would think, and not being overly optimistic, that it is safe to say that alliances have never been more necessary. And as the world divides between China and the U.S., every single country is now facing multiple challenges that really require a global response. Obviously, on COVID research and vaccination, we've seen the pitfalls there, addressing digital privacy concerns, halting the drug trade, confronting human trafficking, terrorism, both domestic and international, and tackling root causes of displacement and migration. All of these are just global issues, and the list can go on. And the list is huge for President Biden. But Mooney, I think that it's not only the difficult problems that sort of merit your global table metaphor, there's also positive stuff, advances in technology, artificial intelligence, space exploration, scientific research no longer has borders, and trade agreements and globalizations have fallen from grace. And it just seems that we need new rules of the game to be reestablished and redesigned around global commerce and so many other things. Today, more than ever, it seems like we're all looking for a way to cooperate and to build strong alliances to find cures for cancer, 
solutions in global education, expanding food sustainability, tearing down barriers and creating cultural diversity. I do think it's important to note that that throne that the U.S. abdicated four years ago has changed. So Biden's not going to find the same characters or or topics and not to overuse the analogy, but it's no longer captained by a king on a big chair. It looks more like a round table with new and diverse knights where everyone has a voice and strengths are spread a lot more widely, especially within Asian countries. And the U.S. is weighed down by its own struggles, no longer the owner of all the answers nor all the money, not even the same credibility. And military might has spoken strongly in all of these groups, but it's not sufficient anymore. And the rest of the world has seen an exemplary democracy almost fall to pieces. And it's really cautiously, skeptically, I would say, waiting for reconstruction or for the other shoe to drop. So Biden's team, which is a definitely a seasoned group, will re-enter the global arena with strength, but without that bully pulpit that it's held for so many years. With solutions, but not formulas, with advice, but no preaching. It's definitely a different world and one that requires a completely different conversation. Peter, last year you set out a dire warning to our listeners. I was listening to that episode before, and I want to quote exactly what you said. If the U.S. sets the table for extremist rhetoric and non-democratic forces, don't be surprised when they come to the table. And you were right, and I'm, I'm usually at disagreement with you on many things, but you were definitely right on there. And this is, it's an opportunity to shift the tides. And again, we can't be too optimistic, but we can definitely be hopeful. Okay, I want our listeners to note that you've conceded that I'm right. Ah, this is yes, like that a, happens sometimes. It's a, it's, a, it's a moment of truth. But look, before we introduce our guests, can we just talk also a bit about world leaders, the unstoppable rise of Xi, the incredible repressive streak of Putin, the void left by Merkel, Mar- Macron's grandiosity, Abe's health and resignation, Modi's internal struggles, Netanyahu's indictment, Bolsonaro's inept bluster. It's a tough global neighborhood. And the question is, how is Biden going to fit in? And, you know, he's armed with his experience, with his incredible charm, a robust team. And is he going to be up to leading this global challenge? Well, we're going to kick that question over to our guests and let me introduce or reintroduce Ivo Dalder. He's a co-author with James Lindsay of The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership. This is his 10th book, and he's the current president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, was U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2009 to 2013. He's also been a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, a professor at University of Maryland School of Public Policy, and director for European Affairs at the NSC under Bill Clinton. He went to Kent, to Oxford, to Georgetown, and received his PhD from MIT. Ivo, you are the right person to answer all our questions. Welcome back. It's great to have you back on Altamar. Uh, nice to be here, Mooney and Peter. Uh, looking forward to a good conversation. We talked about your very aptly titled book, The Empty Throne, more than two years ago. It seems like it wasn't that long ago. What would be the title of a sequel if you published it kind of midway through President Biden's first term? Well, so I'm not in the prognostication business. Uh, it's kind of hard to figure out uh, barely a week into the Biden administration what the world will be look like two years from now. But if we just uh, straight line current trends, which is probably exactly the wrong thing to do, and everything uh, in the last two years tells you that's probably not the right thing to do. But if you were to do that, maybe the title will be the oval table uh, or the round table with the idea that clearly the Biden administration is coming into office with a president and a team that is committed first and foremost 
uh, as he said in his inaugural address, on repairing our alliances and reengaging the world once again. And the repairing alliances metaphor might be seen as around maybe hollow table or, uh, or, or, or square. Uh, it's where I sat when I was the U.S. ambassador to NATO. It was around, uh, and sometimes depending on, on how many people were around the table, a, uh, an oblong square uh, that we would sit in and, uh, and do these discussions. And my sense is that's where, where Biden uh, is going to go. It's clearly the first uh, phone calls uh, by the president, more importantly, by the Secretary of State are all to our allies and friends all around the world to say, we're back and we want to work with you. Ivo, what is the single biggest change that the world has undergone in the past four years? I think the biggest change, uh, and it's, it's hard to say what is the single biggest change, but if you, you know, in terms of the big lasting impact of what's happening in the world, I think it is a, the, the relative change in the balance of power between a United States that through misguided policies, as well as historical uh, structural changes, has departed from the scene. It's why we wrote the book, The Empty Throne, at a time that China economically, militarily, and increasingly politically uh, has become a major global player. And if you look at you know what is the dominant relationships, uh, set of issues that are going to dominate over the next 10 years, the relationship between the United States and China, between the United States and its allies on the one hand and China on the other hand, uh, is going to be a, if not the most important facet of what's happening in the world. Of course, at the same time, other things are happening too. We, we had a pandemic which demonstrates how small our world is, that a disease that is, that, that is in the middle of a Chinese city within literally weeks is uh, completely upsetting the geopolitical, geoeconomic, and social infrastructure around the world. We're seeing on climate change, the rapid change that is happening, the accumulating effect of, of greenhouse gases that is really impacting so much that's happening in the world. But from a geopolitical perspective, U.S.-China relations are going to be the key. Ivo, I, I, I smiled when you talked about a table because Mooney and I, as we were introducing this, we're also talking about a table, and Mooney obviously knows that I'm a food fanatic, So, but she was talking about it very much in the same way you were talking about this. So, But let's talk about this table within the context of a changed world. I mean, one of the regions, for example, that has changed, but you, you, and you've talked about how China has affected this changed world, but the Middle East is also a whole new player. There's a new peace between Israel and a handful of Arab countries, Iraq and shambles, Syria, Al-Assad is consolidated. How does the administration tackle Iran, which was Barack Obama and Joe Biden's, one of their prized foreign policy successes, and other Middle East problems in the context of all these changes? So just to quibble a little bit with the premise, I think if you look at the Middle East today and compare it to four years ago, the change is not as large as one might have thought. Clearly, yes, there are agreements to normalize relations between Israel and a number of states, but it is with states with which Israel had informal relations for a very long time. So it's the codification of something that was uh, already happening in some ways. Iraq, quite frankly, has been in shambles for uh, a couple of decades, uh, if not more, depending on how you want to talk about uh, Saddam's rule. 
but it certainly hasn't, uh, you know, hadn't gotten any better, but it, um, not clear it's gotten terribly worse uh, over the last four years. You know, when Barack Obama left office in, in 2017 and Trump came in, I don't know who would have thought that Assad was not in control of Syria or was going to be in control of Syria. Uh, so the big change that has happened is the one on Iran, which you mentioned, where uh, at the end of the Obama administration, there was an agreement to deal with the nuclear issue, at least for a significant period of time, 10, 15 years. That agreement, because of the decision by President Trump to walk away from it, is now in shambles, I think is the right word to use. And it's going to be very hard to put it back together. Uh, Iran is using its failure to comply with the terms of that agreement, which it's doing in response to America's failure to comply with that agreement. Iran is taking steps carefully to walk away from that agreement and is promising only to come back if the United States completely reverses course. And the US is promising to go back only if Iran completely reverses course. There's a making of a deal here, by the way, since both want to come back to the agreement. It's a timing and sequencing but in the meantime, domestic politics in Iran and domestic politics in the United States will have a big impact on, on how this evolves. Ibo, let's go back to the China, the main policy issue. What do you think will change with China under a Biden administration? Will the administration be able to contain the global expansion of China as a trade and investment powerhouse? I'm Latin American. I've seen the inroads, every continent, everywhere. Is there any possibility in the horizon that this might change? No, China is a great power and it's not going to go away. We, may, we can't wish it away. We can't, frankly, contain or confront it away, which has uh, seemed to be towards the end of the, the Trump administration, the idea that if you sort of undermine the Communist Party and its control in China, not sure how you would do that, but uh, that somehow China would disappear as a factor in international politics. That's not going to happen. The fundamental question for the Biden administration is how do you deal with a rising power? And you have to deal with it in a mixture of confrontation or the better word, competition and coexistence. We're not going to find a world in which China and the United States don't exist. They have to work together on a whole series of issues. If you care about climate change, if you care about global public health, if you care about global economic prosperity, some degree of interaction and cooperation will be necessary. And at the same time, it's critical uh, for the United States to marshal the, the power and forces that it has, most importantly, domestically, but also by working together with its friends and allies around the world to make the competition one in which the United States and its friends have a better outcome than has been the case over the past few years, where China, frankly, has been beating us economically, politically, and in some cases, militarily, certainly in the, in the region that it calls home. You've been talking recently about the three nuclear threats that the Biden administration has inherited, Russia, Iran, North Korea. Can you expand a little bit on how they could be addressed? And then we can also talk about the increasing repression in, in Russia and how that in itself can be contained. So yeah, there, there are three, in some ways, four nuclear threats. I mean, China is also increasing its nuclear capability, and that will too will be a factor that will have to be dealt with. But Russia has modernized its nuclear systems across the board, from the small tactical nuclear weapons to strategic nuclear weapons. It's deploying new delivery systems. It has violated a number of treaties from which the United States is now withdrawn. Importantly, the Biden administration came out immediately and said, you know, the one 
nuclear agreement that we have still have, the New START agreement that was negotiated and signed in 2010, was set to expire on February 5th, and the administration decided that it was, under the terms of agreement, would be a good idea to, to extend its terms for five years, and Russia accepted that, in fact, favored that. So we at least have one arms control agreement that gives us insight into the Russian uh, nuclear system, at least the strategic nuclear system, transparency and accountability. But there are many other issues that the Russians are uh, involved in that we will have to tackle subsequently. With Iran, we talked about it. Getting back into the Iran nuclear agreement is, uh, is critical. The question is, how do you do it? And then how do you extend its terms? Because, of course, we are now six years further than the original date of the agreement. It was signed in 2015. Some of the uh, measures that were agreed to in 2015 are set to uh, phase out in, in 2025 and others in 2030. So if we're going to get back into an agreement with Iran, which I think we can, but it's going to be diplomatically difficult and hard work, we need to also extend those terms. And then, of course, there's North Korea. Uh, we've had three summits between President Trump and, and Kim Jong-un. We have in some ways normalized the uh, the North Korean regime. And in response to the, that outreach, we have seen the North Koreans doubling down on their nuclear program, doubling down on their missile program, expanding the, the capacity to reach its immediate neighbors, U.S. territories in the Pacific, and increasingly the capacity to hit the United States with nuclear weapons uh, delivered by land and, and perhaps sea-based missiles. So we will have to engage the North Koreans, hopefully in a more effective way than, frankly, the Trump administration did, or frankly, anybody else. This has been a, a problem that has been there for 25 years, in fact, 30 years or so. Uh, the early Clinton administration was a big North Korean nuclear crisis at the time. The Clinton administration uh, signed an agreement that, uh, that lapsed. Uh, the Bush administration tried to uh, and did come to an agreement with the North Koreans and having a, a, a focus on how we get the North Koreans to live up to its ultimate commitment, which is to denuclearize the Korean peninsula, will remain a key requirement. And I just wanted to follow up on Mooney's last, the question she pinned at the end, which was the, I mean, you know, the whole Russian repression, this is increasingly going to be front page story, it seems. It is. And, you know, interestingly enough, Biden will be the first post-Cold War president to come to office not committed to, to uh, improving relations with Russia. And you remember that Bill Clinton, of course, famously embarked on the, on, on the bromance with Boris Yeltsin, the Bill and, and, and Boris show. George Bush famously looked in Putin's eyes and, and, and got a sense of his soul. Obama pressed the reset button and Trump, of course, has a, had a very special relationship with, uh, with Russia and Putin and, and constantly said, wouldn't it be a good thing if we had good relations? Biden is not coming to power uh, with that belief. He's learned uh, over the years, including when he was vice president, uh, that Putin is, as he calls him, a thug, a KGB thug. He uh, notably didn't get as much attention as I think it deserved when he was asked just before the election by Nora O'Donnell in the 60-minute interview, what country is the biggest threat to the United States. He said Russia. China is a, the biggest competitor, but Russia is the biggest threat. And he, he looks at and sees it that way. The people who he has appointed around him see Russia in that way. And the threat is both strategic and military in, in the traditional way we think about the Russia threat and because it is undermining our, our, our most fundamental values, both at home as we see in, in, in the crackdown on protests in Navalny, Alexei Navalny, the, 
the biggest critic of Putin, the most effective critic of Putin, who was first poisoned and uh, overcame that and has just been recently arrested and is now in jail. And uh, of course, the kind of activities that the Russians have been engaging in abroad, uh, undermining our elections, the British election, the French election, the Italian election, and then most uh, spectacularly in, in hacking into our government and, and corporate computer networks with damage of which we, I think we've only scratched the surface when it comes to figuring out what they've been doing. Ivo, let me take a step back from the tour of the world that we just did. And, you know, it just feels today like the two historical pillars of U.S. foreign policy, which is in part the military and in part trade and commercial engagement, have faded a bit from the foreground in light of other issues like climate change and health and immigration and technology. And how does that change not only the balance of power between the great powers, but how do new powers get incorporated into this? Because it just feels like we're always talking about the Indias and the Brazils, but it never seems to go anywhere. Well, I think this this may be the age of diplomacy. And clearly, the way that Biden is approaching how to think about foreign policy, it's putting diplomacy first and not the military. He put his most trusted and closest foreign policy advisor and made him secretary of state, one of his former national security aides, he made national security advisor. He put a military man in charge of the Defense Department, the military despite what we think are usually the most reluctant to use military force because they know what it means uh, when it comes to American foreign policy. Tony Blinken has, has made clear he wants to rebuild the, the State Department, and you see in his outreach that that is going to be critical. So you have, a, I think, a rebalancing away from the over-militarization of our foreign policy, which we've seen particularly since 9-11, but in some ways since the end of the Cold War. A, a retreat from the idea that globalization and free market uh, markets and, and, and trade will necessarily lead to political liberalization, the idea that animated our, you know, getting the Chinese in the WTO, et cetera, is, has taken a backseat. Yes, trade is still important. Yes, globalization is still a fact of, of life and it is central to prosperity, but there are big issues that need to be tackled which Biden, for example, has done through the Buy America Act, which is a, a more protectionist stand uh, and saying we really need to focus on issues at home. I see diplomacy as the, as the bigger issue. And so when you think, think about diplomatic engagement, you then have to think about who do you engage with? And uh, yes, you do that with allies, countries we always talk to and always want to work with. But increasingly, if you want to tackle big global issues, you have to deal with uh, with other countries as well. And here's where the Indias and the South Africas, uh, the Brazils, the Nigerias, and of course, China, but also Indonesia and big, uh, big uh, Mexico, big countries in particular core regions need to be engaged uh, in order to address the problems that, uh, that we all face. You know, another big foreign policy pillar has been democracy promotion for so many years. And how does that work after the insurrection and humiliating blow that we just suffered? I mean, who, who will listen to us on democracy promotion in the next couple of years? Well, clearly, if you want to believe in, in uh, the importance uh, of democracy and its promotion, its support around the world, when uh, the U.S. that used to be seen as the shining, or at least saw itself as the shining city on a hill 
in which the example that we set for the rest of the world was for the rest of the world to copy. Well, let's not. Uh, I think the example we have set recently when it comes to our democracy is not one that we want to encourage people to, co- to copy. So I do think that a democracy agenda abroad has to start with re- rebuilding democracy at home. And I see the democratic crisis, the crisis of, in our democracy, which while on, on the one hand, a democracy prevailed, as Biden said in his inaugural address, and indeed the, the victor in an election was allowed to take, to take office, uh, that's, hi- that's hardly a, a great standard. And we got pretty darn close to democracy not uh, prevailing. And as Biden also said in his inaugural address, democracy is very fragile. And we have to figure out how do we address the fragility of democracy, the fact that we now live in in a world in which there are different versions of truth and different facts, alternative or real, that are equally uh, applicable, in which large segments of society don't accept the legitimacy of an election, uh, including large segments of elected officials in the federal government, not accepting the legitimacy of an election is a deep uh, structural problem uh, in American democracy and significantly affects our ability to talk about, let alone promote uh, democracy abroad. So I would argue we can't forget about the importance of democracy and human rights and the rule of law abroad. These are not only core values that we hold dear, our interests is served by working with countries uh, that that hold those values dear, but we can't do so unless we uh, have a very fundamental debate about the weakness and fragility of our own democracy and address them head on. Ivo Dalder, thank you for coming on Altamar once again on our table. We appreciate it. Uh, Peter Mooney, uh, my, uh, my pleasure. Happy to do it anytime. So listening to Evo, Peter, I'm really not that sure that it's going to be easy for the U.S. to come back to the table, even if it's round. I don't think this is the same world that they stood up from. I don't think that the challenges are the same, and I don't think that the discourse is going to be similar. So I think that the new kid on on the table is going to have a rougher time than everybody expects. I mean, that may be right, and he, you know, he made this repeated point, which so many people are making that. You know, his team is so seasoned and so capable and knows the knows the world, knows knows the leaders. But I gotta tell you, I mean the it's been it's a scrambled world and what we live in. But I thought really what stuck with me was this whole notion of that Biden is the first post Cold War president and that he comes in with a very antagonistic view of Russia. And that that really stuck with me. And it's it's one that is probably right on. And I confess I hadn't thought about it, but it's one that if that's the case, the Russian-US relationship is something that we're gonna have to do another episode on because it's gonna dominate a lot. And I'm out of time. So thanks for listening to Altamar. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us on the platform you get your podcasts. Also, subscribe to our newsletter on altamar.us and stay up to date on everything Altamar. Till next time.